the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today on the program in the first hour, we'll talk with Jeff Myers, author of Unquestioned Answers, Rethinking 10 Christian Clichés to Rediscover Biblical Truth. In the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jeremy Dice, Special Counsel for Litigation and Communications for First Liberty Institute, on an appeal before the Texas 3rd District Court of Appeals in Austin, Texas, against efforts by the city of Magnolia to impose water fee. It's kind of a scheme on tax-exempt churches without due process. We'll give him an opportunity to explain not only what's happening, but why it's important. All of that coming up. Also, we'll be giving away in this hour a pair of tickets to Encourage Gathering, that conference coming up this Friday and Saturday. In fact, tomorrow is the last day to purchase your tickets. You can go online at EncourageGathering.com for more information. And that's spelled with an I, EncourageGathering.com. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, they're calling it Jomentum, Biden's Jomentum, growing in Michigan, Missouri, and major blow to uh, His rival, Bernie Sanders, well, Joe Biden swept to victory in Michigan's pivotal primary contest yesterday while notching wins elsewhere in the Midwest and the South, as well as in Idaho, building on the former vice president's momentum from Super Tuesday a week ago and further clouding Senator Bernie Sanders' path forward in the presidential race, saying America needs a president who believes in empathy and compassion and respect for everyone rather than one bent on divisiveness. The former vice president sounded a measured tone as he addressed supporters and Philadelphia late Tuesday. In his remarks, he seemed to extend a hand to Sanders supporters, thanking the candidate and his voters for their tireless energy and their passion. Well, Sanders uh, did not speak publicly at the uh, Tuesday night event, the first time he's declined to address supporters in the aftermath of a primary vote this uh, campaign season. He spoke this afternoon. Uh, Biden's win in Michigan in particular was a body blow to Sanders, who narrowly pulled off an upset in the state four years ago against Hillary Clinton and had fought anew to to demonstrate his appeal in the vital Rust Belt state this time around. Well, the Midwestern battleground state helped send President Trump to the White House. It'll be quite a a battle in November. There's no sugarcoating this. It's a tough time for the movement. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, one of Sanders' most prominent surrogates, said on Instagram, the upcoming March 17th primary in Florida is expected to be challenging for Sanders as well. Well, the total amount of coronavirus cases in the U.S. surpassed 1,000 on Tuesday night, with the virus officially being reported in all but 12 states. Various events have been canceled throughout the country as health officials warned about attending large-scale gatherings. At least 28 deaths have been reported in all 12, all but 12 states. Uh, we would like the country to realize that as a nation, we can't be doing the kinds of things we were doing a few months ago. That's a quote from Dr. Anthony Fauci, a top official at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. During a White House news briefing, he referenced guidelines by the White House uh, ask advising people rather to clean their hands regularly and avoid handshakes. It's really fairly simple. People should also develop new habits such as covering coughs and sneezes and refraining from touching their faces. 
Uh, The CDC is also advising those over 60 with underlying health conditions to avoid crowded places, unnecessary travel, and to stock up on supplies. I'm not sure what that means, but if you were, for for example, quarantined, self-quarantined or otherwise, for a period of two weeks, 14 days, it's important to have what you need. Well, the spread of COVID-19 has quickened in the United States in recent days. Over 100 new cases have been announced on average per day since uh, Saturday. More than 100 people have uh, tested positive in New York and California and in Washington state. Well, the Trump administration is likely to extend the April 15th tax deadline as part of an effort to mitigate the effects of the novel coronavirus in the U.S. on households and businesses. An administration official and another person familiar with the matter told the Wall Street Journal. Neither the decision to extend the deadline nor the mechanics of how such an extension might work are yet final. Normally, individuals must pay their prior year's taxes by the 15th of April or face penalties and interest charges. People can already get tax extensions through mid-October to file their returns as long as they have paid on time by mid-April. This decision would go further than that. The next Democratic debate is to be held without an audience. Uh, There was some discussion about uh, allowing the candidates to be seated. Um, Bernie Sanders opposed that idea. Some suggested that uh, it's such a blowout, it was not necessary to have further debates. That apparently has been uh, tossed out as well. So the next Democratic debate, which is just in days, will be held without an audience. Chuck Schumer's Supreme Court saga is not over as GOP is uh, pressing forward on historic censure of the uh, senator. Saudi Arabia has thrown the, down the gauntlet to Russia, raising crude oil supply to record highs. Hunter Biden is going to skip the deposition in the paternity case, citing coronavirus and his pregnant wife as the reasons for choosing not to appear. And President Trump has endorsed Tommy Tuberville over Jeff Sessions in the Alabama Senate runoff. On this day in history, 2019, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is quoted in the Washington Post as saying she's not in favor of impeaching President Trump because it would be too divisive, saying he's not just worth it or just not worth it. Rather, Trump would be impeached nine months later on the 18th of December, 2019. And on this day in history, 1918, the first apparent confirmed U.S. case of a deadly global flu pandemic are reported among U.S. Army soldiers stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas. The worldwide outbreak of influenza would kill an estimated 20 million to 40 million people. On this day in history, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs the Lend-Lease Bill, which would provide war supplies to countries fighting the Axis powers in World War II. And finally, on this day in history, 2011, a magnitude 9 earthquake and resulting tsunami strike Japan's northeastern coast, killing nearly 20,000 people and severely damaging the Fukushima uh, Daiichi nuclear power station. With a similar numbers to those we saw last week, after six more states, um, Biden has take, uh, taken a commanding lead in the effort to win the Democratic nomination for uh, the White House. If you were watching CNN, you might have thought Sanders took the state of Mississippi, but he did not. An interesting exit poll found most Democrats in Mississippi want Medicare for all. And from the Wall Street Journal editorial board, the mass voter mobilization of the uh, proletariat that Mr. Sanders promises simply hasn't materialized. As that fact becomes clearer to Democrats who want to win in November, Bernie's chances of a comeback diminish even more. And though Italy is seeing their death surge as uh, China is seeing them plummet, 
Uh, South Korea and China see an improvement in their coronavirus cases. South Korea has also seen a dramatic decline. Meanwhile, the New York Times notes among the people in the United States who have died from coronavirus, almost all of them had been in their 70s, 80s and 90s. The youngest known fatality was a man in his 40s. From another story, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has ordered a contamination zone in New Rochelle, a small city that has become a coronavirus hotspot and deployed the state National Guard to help. And the Washington Post is telling its staff to work from home. The United States now has more than 1,000 cases, a quarter of those in the state of Washington. And South Carolina Democratic Representative Jim Clyburn is among those now hoping to keep Biden hidden from public view by shutting down the primary before Biden embarrasses himself further. That's from NPR. And from Molly Hemingway, uh, clearly Democratic Party wants to keep Biden in a form of witness protection until he has the delegates to clinch. Question is whether that will hurt him too much in the general. And Dr. Jill Stein has been discussing the trouble with his obvious cognitive decline. That's in Breitbart. And even the very kind uh, Britt Hume said, like so many people his age, is uh, losing his memory and getting senile. Well, I'm not sure we can go that far, but he goes on to say, I don't think there's any doubt about this. I have traces of this myself. I know what it feels like. Sometimes you're confused. Sometimes you can't remember. What are you supposed to do the next morning? And I'm running for president, and it's probably a good thing I'm not, end quote. Again, Brett Hume, who's in the same age range as the former vice president. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue to wind our way through some of the news. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Next segment, we'll talk with Jeff Myers, author of Unquestioned Answers, Rethinking 10 Christian Clichés to Rediscover Biblical Truths. Want to take a moment and give away our pair of tickets to Encourage Gathering 2020, a two-day women's conference at Rolling Hills Community Church. That's this Friday night and Saturday. It's a women's gathering exploring what it means to be rooted in grace, to live loved and love others well, integrating biblical, clinical, and relational wisdom to transform our lives. You can learn all about it online at EncourageGathering.com, and that's Encourage spelled with an I, EncourageGathering.com. But we'd love to give a pair of tickets away to our fourth caller, and the number to call, 800-845-2162, 800-845-2162. Again, Encourage Gathering taking place this weekend, Friday and Saturday, at Rolling Hills Community Church in Tualatin, 800-845-2162, caller number four. Well, Senator Bernie Sanders won North Dakota's Democratic presidential caucuses. The Associated Press uh, confirmed after losing to former Vice President Biden in Tuesday's contests in Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri and Idaho. The win in North Dakota is Sanders' only victory of the night. Uh, Sanders, who won uh, a landslide victory in 2016, Washington state caucuses were neck and neck with Biden in the state 2020 primary with just over two thirds of the votes counted. As of uh, this uh, yesterday morning, Biden grew or rather this morning, Biden grew his lead over Sanders in the race for delegates with 823 to the Devon, uh, Vermont senator's 663. The delegate count is expected to change as votes come in. Well, Biden swept the uh, to victory in Mas- uh, Michigan's pivotal primary contest while notching wins elsewhere in the Mideast, Midwest rather, and South, building on 
the former vice president's momentum from Super Tuesday a week ago. The win in Michigan in particular was a body blow to Senator Sanders, who narrowly pulled off an upset in the state four years ago against Hillary Clinton and had fought anew to demonstrate his appeal to the vital Rust Belt state this time around. Well, the Midwestern battleground state helped send President Trump to the White House. So this is a significant uh, swath of the country. Biden and his remarks seem to extend a hand to Sanders supporters, thanking the candidates and his uh, voters for their tireless energy and passion. Meanwhile, Senator Sanders, after a drubbing in the latest round of primaries, uh, held a press conference um, with regard to his presidential bid. And I think most people thought he was going to announce that he was going to be pulling out of the race. Well, that was not what happened. The decision from the populist senator from Vermont, who was making his second straight White House bid, came the day after he was pummeled by the former vice president. As the bad news from the 6th uh, March 10th contests continued to come in on Tuesday night, the self-described Democratic Socialist headed home to Burlington, Vermont, and took an unusual step of not giving a primetime primary speech that night. Last night, obviously, was not a good night for our campaign from a delegate point of view, Sanders said today. But looking for the silver lining, he touted his victory in uh, in North Dakota and noted he's leading in the Washington state vote count. Well, Sanders was the front runner in the Democratic nomination race last month. Thanks to his virtual tie in Iowa's caucuses, outright victory in New Hampshire's primary and the shellacking of Biden and the rest of the field in Nevada's caucuses. Biden nearly left the uh, was nearly left for dead, how uh, rather mounted a lightning fast comeback with perhaps some orchestration behind it, uh, starting with his landslide victory in South Carolina at the end of February, followed by sweeping victories three days later on Super Tuesday. Biden's assembled uh, coalition of voters solidly winning among African-Americans, women, suburban and rural voters, while Sanders remained strong among younger voters. He failed to expand upon his base. And as uh, his electability argument with white working class voters was shattered by Biden in Michigan. Well, he uh, made the announcement that while he um, does not see a way of, of getting to the number of delegates necessary, he is not dropping out of the race. And he issued a series of questions that gives something of an outline that the former vice president can expect when they debate in just a, a couple of days. Um, meanwhile, Bernie Sanders supporters are not uh, backing down. They're actually uh, progressives are sounding the alarm on Biden's cognitive decline, perhaps as a, a means of uh, holding on to the momentum that is now being lost. Attacks against the former vice president have escalated as many on the left are accusing the Democrat frontrunner of being in cognitive decline, and some are even claiming without evidence that he has dementia. And while Biden's gaffes have long been mocked by President Trump, Senator Bernie Sanders refrained from attacking the 2020 frontrunner on a personal level when asked about Biden's mental fitness and the concerns among some Democrats uh, during the Fox News town hall on Monday night. I'm not going to go on that level of, of attack, he said. That's for people to decide. Sanders uh, in his town hall said, speaking to Brett Baer and Martha McCallum, several Twitter users unaffiliated with the campaign voiced their concerns about Biden's uh, fitness uh, and others have as well. But his performance alone will determine whether or not he stands in the uh, in the coming days. Um, I won't even go into more details on that. Uh, the outbreak of the they're calling it the novel coronavirus that's now sickening more than 100,000 people across the world has officially been declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization weeks after the World Health Organization chief uh, told reporters in February that the outbreak of the virus and the disease it causes COVID-19 absolutely had the potential to become a pandemic. It has now officially been classified a pandemic. 
the World Health Organization has been assessing this outbreak around the clock, and we are deeply concerned about the alarming levels of spread and severity and the alarming levels of inaction. Uh, he said during a press conference earlier today, we have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 is a, a pandemic. Now, what is a pandemic as opposed to an epidemic? Well, a pandemic describes the worldwide spread of a new disease. So it spreads from one country to another. It involves a new virus against which most people don't have immunity. And that would be the case with the uh, coronavirus. Uh, the virus can affect people easily spread from person to person. We've seen that. It implies efforts to contain an outbreak in a region or country have failed. And a pandemic describes how widespread an illness is, not how lethal it is. So when the word is applied, it doesn't mean this is a deadly virus and everyone who contracts it is going to lose their battle against it. What it does say is that it's widespread. Now, for the most part, if you are a healthy person without uh, pre-existing conditions that um, undermine or conditions that undermine your uh, immune system, you're less likely to have a serious response, although I'm, my guess is there may be exceptions. But that's what a pandemic is. Again, it's, it describes the worldwide spread of a new disease. It involves a new virus against which most people don't have immunity. It's a virus that can affect people easily and spread from person to person. It implies efforts to contain an outbreak have failed, and we've seen that uh, in country after country. And a pandemic describes how widespread an illness is but does not uh, describe how lethal it is. So that's something uh, definitely to take into account when considering um, what has now been declared a pandemic. Additionally, there are different phases of pandemics. For instance, the World Health Organization has a pandemic alert system for the flu, ranging from phase one to phase six. Phase one means there's a low risk of flu pandemic, while phase six, uh, which refers to a full-blown pandemic, means that it's much more widespread. The advice is still the same. Wash your hands thoroughly. I watched a a television interviewer speak to people on the street and one woman said, you know, they, they're advising we wash our hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. She said, you know, I don't have time for that. She didn't have time to wash her hands for 20 seconds regularly throughout the day, not only for her own sake, but for the sake of others. But we are told to wash our hands, sing happy birthday, and that'll give you about the right length of time. The other thing that uh, was suggested at Bible Study Fellowship yesterday is uh, one gentleman decided he was going to recite scripture during that time, and that way he could work on his <laughs> scripture memorization as he's washing his hands throughout the day. We're encouraged to avoid sick people and to stay home if we are ill. So those are fairly simple things that we can do. And as I mentioned uh, Maybe I didn't mention it yet. The governor of Oregon is going to have a press conference tomorrow to talk about steps that are being taken right here in the state of Oregon. So we'll tell you more about that later in the program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Jeff Myers, Unquestioned Answers, Rethinking 10 Christian Clichés to Rediscover Biblical Truth. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Let me ask you, when was the last time you heard someone use a Christian cliche? Do these cliches reflect the true biblical picture? That's the question we're going to address in just a few moments. Well, in Unquestioned Answers, Rethinking 10 Christian Cliches to Rediscover Biblical Truths, Summit Ministries President Jeff Myers helps readers question these cliches as well as embrace the truth of Scripture. I mean, isn't that the, the goal that all of us have to understand and communicate? 
advocate and live by the truth of Scripture? Well, he tackles 10 popular Christian cliches. We won't we won't give you what they are just this minute. But uh, he says that by wrestling with these cliches, I've sensed a change in my own life. My relationship with God is closer. Uh, he says in Unquestioned Answers, I'm more inclined to ask questions and listen thoughtfully to others. I have a better understanding of the Bible, faith, prayer, Christian community, sin, forgiveness, worldview, justice, judgment, the world, and God's goodness. Well, it sounds to me like we need to question these unquestioned cliches. Well, my guest, Dr. Jeff Myers, has become one of America's most respected authorities on Christian worldview, apologetics, and leadership development. He is the author of several books, including The Secret Battle of Ideas About God, and is president of Summit Ministries. He and his family live in Colorado. For over 50 years, Summit Ministries has equipped and supported rising generations to embrace God's truth and champion a biblical worldview. And by the way, you can find out more on their website, summit.com. Org. But we are delighted to have Dr. Jeff Myers with us to talk about his latest book, Unquestioned Answers, Rethinking 10 Christian Clichés to Rediscover Biblical Truth. Dr. Myers, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Georgine. Great to be with you. It's good to have you with us. You know, it would be easy to just accept Christian clichés as sort of a light way of addressing some biblical truth. What uh, What caused you to question whether or not these cliches were somehow robbing us of a deeper understanding of what Scripture teaches and impacting us in ways that we may not be aware. Some of the story I share in the book, yes. Georgine, but I, I realized as I, I, I live in a little hippie town in Colorado called Manitou Springs, that's where Summit Ministries is located, and uh, it's, I think it's probably fair to say that the, most of the people in my town hold views about politics and social issues that are diametrically opposed to everything that I stand for. And so I'm constantly in conversations with people who uh, have a lot of unanswered questions about Christianity and about the Bible, and they're kind of curious. But unfortunately, they've met a lot of believers who have unquestioned answers, those snappy responses to tough questions that unfortunately keep our thinking at a shallow level. So I, I thought, you know, I need to address this because I really would love to see a revival of truth in our country, but I don't think it's going to happen until we as Christians learn to really embrace and speak the truth in a deeper way. We'll talk about what these unquestioned answers are in just a few moments, but is this sort of an a lazy way of addressing uh, deep issues that we aren't prepared to address or... Um, haven't thought through ourselves, why is it that we rely heavily upon, and I don't want to overstate the case, but why do we rely on cliches that shorten a conversation that requires uh, more thoughtful deliberation? Well, sometimes, uh, Georgine, we, we default to these unquestioned answers and cliches because we're, we're afraid. We've heard a sermon at some point, and the pastor stated something in a very simple fashion that we thought was very powerful, and we think oh, well, that's good. He's done all of this thinking about that. I guess I don't need to think about it anymore. And, and we kind of, it, but what ends up happening is that it's not just a summary of lots of thoughtfulness. It becomes the only thought that we really have, right? And it, I mean, you think of it in terms of discipleship, it can be pretty bad. Jesus called us to be fishers of men. Nobody ever caught a fish by skimming the surface. You have to be willing to go deep. And I think people are willing to go deep. I have had profound conversations with non-believers once I learned to start asking questions rather than simply trying to uh, apply a, a kind of a bumper sticker theology mm-hmm. to the questions they were asking. 
Now, how did you decide which 10 questions, to, uh, unquestioned answers, rather, you would include in your book? Well, I love that question, Georgine. It's, uh, we, we kind of talked it over as a team here. We knew that we wanted to address these. We knew it probably would irritate people. My goodness, it irritated me when I was writing the book, and I was the one writing it because I had used some of these cliches, and I realized I'm going to have to set that aside, something that I have said for a long, long time. But we picked out probably 15 that our team members had heard over and over again, and we picked what we thought would be the top 10 that might be something interesting to read about. So I do want to emphasize, though, to anybody who's listening right now, this book is not an extended rant about cliches. (laughs) It's actually about how we can, in a very straightforward fashion, think more deeply about each of these things without having to, you know, go to seminary and study all of this stuff for years. And I think most of us want to have comfortable conversations with people we uh, come, we encounter um, that lead to a, a, a natural conversation about the things that are, are deeply meaningful to us without it being awkward and sort of cutting off the conversation by using a, a hand, handy cliché. I agree with you. I think most Christians want that, and they prefer that. And when they find out that there are some simple strategies you can use that change that, it's it's really powerful. Um, this changes the lives of the students who come to study with us at Summit Ministries during the summertime. They're 16, 25, so they're not necessarily the ones who are really all that prepared to give good answers, but they come away with a sense of confidence because they realize, you know, I don't have to be aggressive, but I don't have to be an avoider either. I can be an advocate for the people that I'm talking to and for the ideas. I can ask questions. I can be curious. I don't have to feel threatened. And all of a sudden, they're opening up into all of these relationships and talking about truth in the most unusual circumstances. It's it's really fun to watch, and yeah. I, I would love for more Christians to experience that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about these uh, 10 unquestioned answers that are, are common cliches uh, that that circulate within the Christian community and some t- sometimes seep out into the conversation with uh, unbelievers. Mm. Well, you know, the first one that I tackle in the book is one that I heard as a little kid uh, in church. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. And I heard everybody around me say, amen. And I thought, oh, wow. Even as a little kid, I thought, how is it that our pastor can be so absolutely convinced of something that I'm not so sure of? So I thought about it for a long time, and I, I nearly walked away from my faith as a young person because I, I, I didn't, didn't feel that I could get good answers. And I finally realized the problem wasn't with the Bible. The problem was the, with the way we interpret and understand the Bible. When you say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it for me, you're making it about you rather than about God. And once you start with that, you never really can arrive at truth because all you're arriving at is just, you know, a sanctimonious way to try to um, gird up your own impressions and your, what you would like to be true. The whole point about God's Word is that God calls us to explore it, to examine it, to defend it, and, and, uh, and, and we really need to dig in rather than just say, hey, I don't, I don't think about that kind of thing anymore because it's all settled uh, in my mind. I don't know if that's helpful, but that's well, kind of how I... Yeah, and I would, I would add to that. It seems to me it says to anyone who may have a legitimate, sincere question that you really shouldn't ask questions, that the, the finding an answer or exploring the, the, the answer 
uh, really says that you don't have sufficient faith or somehow you don't have something that you should have so that you wouldn't have to even pursue a question. It, it just seems to me, to me that it stifles conversation about things that we genuinely wonder about. That is such a huge observation. It, and it, it's one that really gets me fired up because I felt that way growing up. Mm-hmm. I felt like if, if I was asking questions, then I was doubting. And doubting is sin. So asking questions is sin. And I feel like I'm spending so much of the time we have with students at Summit Ministries. And this is a, a deeply biblically orthodox program where our professors yes. you know, have PhDs, but they love Jesus and they, they believe the Bible is true but they also recognize that you don't help somebody overcome their doubts by telling them that it's wrong to doubt. You have to learn to question and, and find answers. And, and you have to learn to doubt your doubts, frankly, which is confusing to a lot of our students. But once they grasp it, they realize, oh, yeah, yeah, I doubt the truth, but I need to doubt my doubts, too, because it doesn't necessarily mean that my doubt is true. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> and and uh, then all of a sudden you see them grow in confidence. There's just like this big sigh of relief. Oh, I don't have to walk away from my faith to be a smart person. And Jesus is just as present with me in my psychology class as he is in my residence hall or in my FCA huddle. Yeah, yeah. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Dr. Jeff Myers. His book is titled Unquestioned Answers, Rethinking 10 Christian Clichés to Rediscover Biblical Truth. He is the uh, director of uh, the president of Summit Ministries. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 49 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Dr. Jeff Myers, president of Summit Ministries. His book is titled Unquestioned Answers, Rethinking 10 Christian Clichés to Rediscover Biblical Truths. I want to talk a little bit about simplicism, as you've coined the word. Uh, but first, let's look at w- another of these uh, clichés that is very common to us. Why don't you pick one that's, that's common and perhaps does uh, some harm more than good? Okay, well, I was just flipping to the table of contents <laughs> as, I, as I realized that was the question you're going to ask. Uh, how, about this, how about this one? Love the sinner, hate the sin. Now, that one gets a lot of people riled up because clearly God loves sinners and clearly God hates sin. But when we say to say someone, usually it's someone involved in same-sex attraction, if we were to say to them, well, I I love you, but I hate your sin, that person only hears what comes after the word but. And what they actually hear is, I hate you. And and what's, what's tragic about that is we end up communicating to other people that their sin is worse for them than our sin is for us. And, and so when people say, well, if Christians I know are judgmental, it's not that people have ever set out to be intentionally judgmental. It's just that they end up not, they end up kind of thinking that, well, you know, my sin is really not that bad, but boy, what that person does is really bad. So I'm going to, you know, put that label of love the sin or hate the sin on it. And uh, what we recommend to our students is instead of saying that, just get to know the person. I want to know you. I, what's your story? How did you arrive at the conclusion that you arrived at? Um, those sorts of questions are really simple to ask, 
and they allow us to develop some credibility so that we can really get down to tough issues. Now, you describe the thinking that goes behind many of these cliches as, and correct me if I'm mispronouncing it, simplicism. It's different from simplicity, but it's something that's sort of a shortcut that doesn't require us to to communicate as well or go as deeply as we might in order to connect with people. Describe what simplicism is. Well, simplicity is the, is the virtue of living an uncomplicated life. But simplicism is the term that I coined to describe the belief that something is not true unless it can be described in a short, simple, snappy way. So we sometimes will think that, you know, the pastor, they're reading the scripture, and then they, the pastor says something that's so, you know, really profound. Well, it's not this, but it's this. And everybody says, ooh, that's so good, and they write it down in their notes. And that's how unquestioned answers a lot of times get started. And not to pick on my pastor friends, but one of our instructors at Summit Ministry said, oh, I know what you're talking about with unquestioned answers. I call them pastorisms. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and, and the pastors, the, think of how hard of a job that is. You're trying to keep the attention of people. You're trying to get them to focus on Scripture, to love Scripture, to love Jesus, to act on what they, they learn. And if you find that if you say something in a short, snappy, simple way, people really respond, boy, well, then you, you kind of want to do that more and more and more. And, and if you look around, the, the, ba- the most popular speakers today who are Christians are the ones who can do just that. And I, I think we need to step back from it and ask, all right, if I can say, state something in a simple way, that doesn't mean it's bad, mm-hmm. but I need to be able to explain and have other people be able to talk through what is the deeper reasoning behind it. How, how did we arrive at that conclusion and, and really teach people to, to articulate that, not just to let them uh, think that, oh, well, my pastor did all my thinking for me, so I don't have to really worry about it. Yeah, this. and you're so right. It's not that some of these cliches, that the core meaning is bad, but they're insufficient. They cannot substitute real conversation and real questions and the freedom to, uh, to pose those questions in a conversation, particularly with unbelievers. I mean, if you use these cliches among Christians, oftentimes we know what, what the other means. But even then, when you take that shortcut, you, you may be short-circuiting a deeper um, question that even your believing brother or sister has. Oh, I, I think of that one. You know, one of the other unquestioned answers, and by the way, I know people are driving home right now, but if, you, if you're thinking, oh, how would, I, how would I get more, you just go to unquestionedanswers.com. Um, it, remember, it just flips the script. It's not unanswered questions. It's unquestioned answers. Go to unquestionedanswers.com, and there's some videos there that in three minutes or so, you can get up to speed on what this whole thing is all about. But one of them, in the, in the book trailer video that we did, that I, and boy, this one makes a lot of people mad. It's this one. God is good all the time, all the time God is good. Now, somebody said to me, well, are you saying that God is not good? And I said, no. What I'm saying is that when we chant something like that, we need to be aware that people around us who are going through extraordinarily difficult things feel panic and lost and confused by that. Because it's as if we're saying, because I can firmly state this, therefore it somehow becomes true. And one of the things you see all throughout Scripture is that God's people, even David, who was a man after God's own heart, regularly said, hey, God, there are things I don't understand. I'm wondering whether you're really good. 
Isn't it amazing that of all of the religious books in the world, the Bible is the only one that encourages people to ask tough questions of God and to really seek his heart to find the answers? Yeah, yeah. You um, offer six actions or attitudes that help us communicate truth without being judgmental. One of the um, unquestioned answers that you provide is this notion that um, we're, we're not to, to judge. It's not my place to judge. Um, what are the six actions and attitudes that help us communicate truth without being judgmental? Um, you know, what I might, because I know we're coming up to the top of the hour here, um, is, is just give a couple of them. One, one thing that we really encourage, I really encourage my students to do is, especially when you're around people who might not be firm believers or might be struggling or maybe they're even antagonistic, just remember five conversation-altering words that help you become present in every situation and listen better, and they're these. Tell me more about that. So if somebody says, well, you know, I don't, I don't think I believe what you, what you believe. Really, tell me more about that. It's a simple introduction to the conversation. If, the, if someone says, well, I think I'm an atheist, you know, say the first question is, hey, tell me, you know, you use the term atheist. What do you mean by atheist? If somebody says, well, I could never believe in a God who would allow bad things to happen to people, hey, tell me, how did you arrive at that conclusion? Does that make sense? You're, just, yeah, you're yeah. always asking questions, and you're showing that you are present, you show that you care as much about hearing what they're thinking about as you are about telling them what you're thinking about. And then in the process, it really helps create a platform for explaining truth. Now, for, for listeners who uh, want to learn more about these unquestioned answers, they can certainly read the book. And for parents who are interested in Summit Ministries, what's the best way to communicate on both of those things with you? Uh, the best way is to, if you just come to summit.org, you can see the programs we have available this coming summer for students 16 to 25 years of age. And students come, they, they meet with and spend time with and learn from top Christian thought leaders who really love Jesus but who are top experts in their field. They get to be in small groups and have one-on-one mentoring with trained mentors. And in the process, it's very life-changing. The programs are two weeks long. So just go to summit.org and you can find out about that. There's also a link at summit.org to find out more about the book, Unquestioned Answers. And if you're the kind of person who likes videos, just go to unquestionedanswers.com and we have a video in there for each one of the chapters. And hopefully that'll uh, stimulate your interest and you can go to wherever you prefer to buy books. Absolutely. Unquestioned Answers. Again, Unquestioned Answers, Rethinking 10 Christian Clichés to Rediscover Biblical Truth. The book is published by David C. Cook. Dr. Myers, thank you so much for taking your time to be with us today. Well, thank you, Georgine. I love your show. Appreciate your city and I'm so grateful for everything you do there. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Later in the second hour, we'll talk with Jeremy Dice. He's special counsel for litigation and communication for First Liberty Institute. We'll talk about an appeal before the Texas Third District Court of Appeals in Austin against uh, efforts by the city of Magnolia to impose a water fee scheme. It's really a tax on tax-exempt churches without due process. More on that in the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Seven minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we will talk with Jeremy Dice, Special Counsel for Litigation and Communications for Liberty, First Liberty Institute, I should say. We'll talk about a case in Texas where there was an effort on the part of the city of Magnolia to impose the water fees that were higher than everyone else's on tax-exempt churches and nonprofits without due process. We'll have uh, Jeremy explain what that uh, means and why it's important. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago at the top of the hour, President Trump will make a statement from the Oval Office tonight about the ongoing situation with the Wuhan virus, which the World Health Organization has officially declared a pandemic. Uh, I will be addressing the nation this evening at nine. He tweeted from the Oval Office, uh, Donald Trump at Donald Trump, uh, real Donald Trump. I am fully prepared to use the full power of the federal government to deal with the current challenge of the coronavirus. Now, it's interesting that the federal government certainly has a role to play, but the federal government cannot mitigate what's happening. So it's interesting to me when people shake their fists, expecting that a centralized government is going to be able to prevent this from spreading. Um, Nonetheless, earlier today, the president met with the nation's top bankers to address the economic fallout of the crisis. Yesterday, he met with CEOs of health insurance companies. They agreed to waive co-payments for Wuhan virus treatment. He also met with Republican senators in Capitol Hill about the potential payroll tax break for, uh, for employers and employees and relief for hourly workers if they get sick. Not clear if that's going anywhere. America is the greatest country in the world, the president tweeted. We have the best scientists, doctors nurses, healthcare professionals. They are amazing people who do phenomenal things every day. Together, we are putting into policy a plan to prevent, detect, treat, and create a vaccine against coronavirus to save lives in America and the world. America will get it done. Well, meanwhile, a previously scheduled press briefing with Vice President Pence and the federal health officials that was set for 5.30 Eastern time from the White House uh, was canceled, perhaps because the president is speaking later in the day. Um, But we did hear from the... uh, We did hear from the vice president and the uh, coronavirus team yesterday going into some uh, detail about uh, their efforts. Vice President uh, Mike Pence said the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention will release new guidelines soon for how different regions of the country should respond to the spread of the coronavirus. We're working very closely with California, Washington State, New York and Florida to develop community specific recommendations for those areas where we've had what is known as community spread. A number of coronavirus cases uh, that is being transmitted. The vice president was speaking on Tuesday at the daily coronavirus briefing at the White House. In the next 24 hours, working with those states, we'll be publishing the CDC's recommendations for what ought to be done, the vice president said. He's the head of the administration's coronavirus task force, also announced that private insurance companies agreed to waive all co-pays for coronavirus testing and treatment. The vice president said testing will be available at LabCorp and Quest Diagnostic locations, and 4 million additional test kits will be sent out by the end of the week. He also said the administration is working with Congress to address reforms to ensure that more masks are available. And that's for healthcare workers, not for those uh, who are trying to avoid the disease. Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, was blunt about the challenge, saying as of this morning, there are 712 cases, I believe, with 27 deaths. I guarantee by this time, um, by the time of this evening, that is going to be up and there will be several more. And tomorrow there will be several more. Still, he said, as a nation, the risk is relatively low. And there are some fairly simple things we can do to protect ourselves. Uh, there are parts of the country 
right now that are having community spread in which the risk there is clearly a bit more than that. Washington State, California, New York and Florida. Uh, Dr. Fauci said the federal government needs to be uh, where the infection is going to be as well as where it's uh, is to get ahead of other communities. As a nation, we can't be doing the kind of things we were doing a few months ago. It doesn't matter if you are in a state that has the case or no case. Uh, you have to start taking seriously what you can do now that if and when infections will come and they will uh, come. Sorry to say, sad to say, he went on. Uh, when you're dealing with an infectious disease. So it will continue to spread, but there are things we can do to uh, minimize the prospect of our being seriously uh, damaged by it. As I mentioned, the president is going to address the nation at 9 p.m. Eastern time. That's 6 o'clock p.m. our time. SRN is going to provide live unanchored coverage of the president's address uh, to the nation tonight, which will be available um, uh, for uh, listeners on our station. Well, the total amount of coronavirus cases in the U.S. surpassed 1,000 on Tuesday night, with the the virus officially being reported in all but 12 states. Various uh, events have been canceled throughout the country as health officials warn about attending large-scale gatherings. At least 28 deaths have been reported. We would like the country to realize that as a nation, we can't do what we have done in the past, Dr. Fauci once again said. He referenced guidelines by the White House advising people to clean their hands regularly, avoid handshakes. You should also start making habits like covering coughs and sneezes, refraining from touching your face. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is advising those over 60 with underlying health conditions to avoid crowded places, unnecessary travel, and to stock up on supplies, prescriptions, and that sort of thing. Governor Gretchen Whitmer, a Democrat out of Michigan, announced the state's first cases on Tuesday night um, and declared a state of emergency to harness our resources across state government to slow the spread of the virus. One case is an adult female from Oakland County with recent international travel, and the other is an adult male from Wayne County with recent domestic travel. It's crucial that all Michiganers or Michiganders uh, continue to take preventative measures to lower their risk and to share this information with friends, family, and coworkers. Well, the patient from Wayne County is currently under isolation, and officials recommend residents continue to practice prevention measures to slow the spread of COVID-19. Local health departments are working to identify anyone who had come in close to uh, in close contact in either of these cases, uh, because that can certainly contribute to the spread of the disease. Now, meanwhile, or the virus. Meanwhile, the House is moving on a coronavirus related stimulus package uh, meant to boost the economy while the uh, fears of the coronavirus will be introduced, uh, has been introduced. This legislation will be introduced on the floor of the House but seems unlikely to include a temporary halt to the payroll tax that the president had been touting. Well, the bill, which lawmakers have been furiously working on for days, comes as the U.S. economy and global markets have faced some pretty severe instability since the global outbreak of the virus. We don't want to panic, but we don't want to give the impression this isn't a major health challenge, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer said on Wednesday, adding that the stimulus package will cost billions. He added it will be much more costly if we don't provide the relief. Now, the deficit and the debt is also a concern in the midst of all of this. Well, Mr. Hoyer uh, was firm that Trump's push for temporary elim- temporarily eliminating the payroll tax through the end of the year would not be included in the stimulus package bill, calling it a non-starter and noting that the idea faces skepticism from both Democrats and Republicans. The president on Tuesday pitched his economic 
economic stimulus idea privately to wary Senate Republicans, but the president's GOP allies have been cool to additional spending at this stage. Democrats prefer their own package of low or no cost virus testing, unemployment insurance and sick pay for workers struggling to keep paychecks coming as the outbreak disrupts workplaces. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. Later, we'll talk about a case in Austin, Texas, Magnolia County, to be more, uh, regular, Magnolia City, to be more precise, imposing a water fee that is exorbitant and higher than um, any other business in the area. This is for churches and nonprofits. We'll explain when he joins us later in this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the state of Washington, the most uh, severely hit state by the coronavirus, is expected to ban gatherings of more than 250 people in the Seattle area with the, where the outbreak is uh, most keenly felt. Governor Jay Inslee made the announcement in a press conference uh, this morning, according to the Seattle Times, installing the ban on Kings, Nahomish, and Pierce counties. The new measures were expected to apply to gatherings such as baseball games, concerts, cultural events, but wouldn't uh, further shut down public schools or curtail retail. If we are going to stop this epidemic or seriously slow it down, we need to look at what's coming in Washington state, the governor said during an earlier press conference on Tuesday. Uh, not just what is here today. There were 267 cases of the COVID-19 illness reported in Washington as of Wednesday morning. The highest count in any state, 24 people have died. In total, the U.S. recorded more than 1,000 cases of the virus in 39 states across the country. The nationwide death toll was uh, at least 30. At least two people in California, two in Florida, one in New Jersey, and one in South Dakota have died from the novel virus as of Wednesday morning. San Francisco announced later Wednesday that the city's banning gatherings of more than 1,000 people which would include Gold State Warrior Games. At least 115 public and private schools and universities in Washington had already closed for one or more days since uh, the 27th of February to prevent the spread of the virus. Uh, The Seattle Times reported this week two Seattle public schools were added to that list. Three schools shut their doors in North Shore, Meridian, and Snohomish public school districts, affecting nearly 36,000 students, which complicates things for parents who may not have uh, child care during the day if they are working. At least 10 long-term care facilities in Washington have reported positive cases of the virus as the uh, virus is spread through nursing homes, most heavily impacting elderly, uh, the elderly population. The uh, state and King County Public Health Department said that they were working with the facilities to prevent further transmission of the highly infectious virus. Meanwhile, the U.S. Treasury was considering pushing back the April 15th tax filing deadline with the outbreak, according to the Wall Street Journal, but the plan has not been finalized or fully approved. After meeting with Senate Republicans, the president urged Americans to stay calm as the government responds to the global outbreak, telling reporters his administration officials are doing a fantastic job providing states with requested aid. But of course, much of what needs to be done is what needs to be done by the individual. We're prepared, he went on to say, and we're doing a great job with it, and it will go away. Everybody has to be vigilant and has to be careful, be calm. Well, Trump himself is yet to be tested. He said the White House doctor told him there was no reason to do so. This comes after it was discovered that someone at the Conservative Political Action 
conference or CPAC tested positive for the virus. The president attended the summit at the end of last month. Several Republican lawmakers, including Senator Ted Cruz of Texas and U.S. Representative Paul Gosar of Arizona, announced separately they would self-quarantine after coming in contact with someone, that same individual at CPAC. There were images that... um, made the connection that they had come in close proximity. NC2A President Mark Emmert, he announced on Wednesday that the men and women's basketball tournaments will take place with only essential staff and limited family attendance. He released a statement in the wake of the coronavirus outbreak, saying the NC2A continues to assess the impact of COVID-19 in consultation with public health officials and our COVID-19 advisory panel. Based on their advice and my discussions with the NC2A Board of Governors, I've made the decision to conduct our upcoming championship events, including the Division I men's and women's basketball tournaments, with only essential staff and limited family in attendance. Uh, While I understand how disappointing this is for all fans of our sport, my decision is based on the current understanding of how COVID-19 is progressing in the United States. This decision is in the best interest of the public health, including that of coaches, administrators, fans, most importantly, our student athletes. We recognize the opportunity to compete in an NC2A national championship is an experience of a lifetime for the students and their families. Today, we will move forward and conduct championships consistent with the current information and will continue to monitor and make adjustments as needed. Well, the NC2A also said that its advisory panel on the outbreak recommended against sporting events being open to the public. Uh, The advisory panel recognizes the fluidity of COVID-19 and its impact on hosting events in public spaces. COVID-19 is spreading rapidly in the United States and behavioral risk mitigation strategies are the best option for slowing the spread of the disease. This is especially important because mildly symptomatic individuals can transmit the virus. So the uh, March Madness for the NC2A will be played with only a few uh, present to enjoy that. Meanwhile, there's advice given for churches from the Surgeon General uh, preparing your church for the coronavirus. And I mentioned earlier, there's also a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page that uh, features a document that is being updated on a regular basis, specifically for churches offering advice on how to conduct um, services and so on uh, during this uh, pandemic. Uh, you can check that out and download the uh, the uh, resource guide there. I'm also going to be talking with the one of the originators of that report tomorrow in the second hour of the program. So some, uh, some good advice uh, there. But the Surgeon General says uh, in preparing your church for coronavirus, don't panic, stop buying masks, wash your hands, and stop shaking hands in church. Uh, All of those were part of a conversation the Surgeon General Jerome Adams had. A small group of faith-based leaders met with Adams to talk about how the faith-based community might respond to the spread of HIV-AIDS with the reality that the states um, with the fastest-growing new incidence of HIV are states that are rural and more religious. Surgeon General Adams talked much about the role faith-based communities have in public health. He shared some of his own story. Uh, And the administration has been engaging in issues of the opioid epidemic, mental health and other major concerns. So it was a broad conversation. But of course, COVID-19 was a part of that conversation. Health should always be a priority. He made that point. This may be true, not um, uh, true now, uh, more now than ever that we've uh, watched this novel coronavirus. And they call it novel because it does mutate. Uh, It's spreading uh, its way through the globe, Hong Kong, Italy, Korea, and more. You can, in fact, find today's coronavirus facts on the World Health Organization's uh, update page. 
Uh, as of today, as I mentioned, there were 90,000 confirmed cases of the COVID uh, virus uh, globally, 64 of those being here in the United States, and it goes on from there. Uh, but he um, uh, made the uh, point that um, it's time for social distancing, which is a relatively new concept for most of us. He says there are three ways um, that governments are dealing with the coronavirus. Social distancing is one of them. According to the uh, to an active uh, an article rather on Vox, it refers to a slew of tactics meant to keep people from congregating in large crowds to slow the spread of the virus. Uh, also, he said, communicate well with your church when it comes to your commitment to keep your people healthy, as healthy as possible. Uh, re- uh, re-educate your church staff and volunteers regarding good hygiene for all. Very simple things that can t- protect most people, not all, but most. And um, he said now might be a good time to at least temporarily modify routines that may threaten to spread the disease. And if you are uh, ill, if you have been in close proximity with someone who is ill, it's a good idea to put the interests of others ahead of your own and decide to uh, to stay away for a season. Fortunately, for many churches, you can find online the, the pastor's teaching, and maybe that's the way the church will meet for a period of time in areas where uh, there's a serious concern. Meanwhile, the Dow Jones Industrial Average once again tumbled into a bear market uh, today, down 20% from its February peak after the World Health Organization declared the new virus. The Dow fell more than 1,500 points, or 6.1%, while the S&P 500 and NASDAQ composite were down over 5%. An official bear market would begin if the Dow finished below 23,641.14. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ composite would be in their own bear markets with respective closes below 2,700 and 7,800 respectively. Well, stocks fell to session lows uh, after uh, Tedros, um, well, I won't even mention, the director general of the uh, World Health Organization <clears throat> called COVID-19 a pandemic, noting there are more than 118,000 cases worldwide. <clears throat> so it's continuing to have an impact on the uh, on the market. Well, in other unrelated news that I think is worth uh, worth mentioning, two Americans and one Brit were killed as more than 15 uh, Katusha rockets hit an Iraqi base housing U.S. troops today. The U.S. military said in a statement, the coalition confirmed that more than 15 small rockets impacted Iraq's Camp Taji uh, base hosting coalition troops on the 11th uh, in the evening. Operation Inherent Resolve spokesman. Colonel Miles Kaggins uh, said on Twitter, he added that uh, an assessment and investigation are ongoing. The attack comes just days after two U.S. service members were killed by enemy forces while advising and accompanying Iraqi security forces during a mission to eliminate an ISIS terrorist stronghold in a mountainous area of north central Iraq on Sunday. The U.S. military couldn't confirm who's responsible for Wednesday's attack. But one source said that ISIS doesn't have this capability. More than 11 people were wounded, and the military continues to attend to those individuals. The attack marks the largest on a U.S. base in Iraq since Iran fired ballistic missiles at bases housing U.S. troops in early January. Up next, we'll talk with Jeremy Dice. We'll find out what's happening in Texas with the church. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 5 five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, today, First Liberty Institute and its network attorneys with the law firm Baker Botts defended three churches on appeal before the Texas 3rd District Court of Appeals in Austin against efforts by the city of Magnolia that's been attempting to impose a water fee scheme on tax-exempt churches and nonprofits without due process. They are uh, Magnolia Bible Church, Magnolia's First Baptist Church, and Believer's Fellowship. Well, Magnolia's city leaders knew these churches wanted to challenge the city's water fee, but they moved quickly and forward to prevent that from happening. Well, here to talk with us about all of that and to explain is Jeremy Dice, Special Counsel for Litigation and Communications for First Liberty Institute. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, tell us what's happened in Magnolia City. Well, the city of Magnolia, I guess a lot like other local governments, they're in search of new revenue. And in this case, we think that they're illegally targeting churches and other nonprofits to raise that extra revenue. But they've got to understand that every dollar that they take from this this church, or these churches, I should say, and is being confiscated by the government, that's a dollar that's not being used by these churches and nonprofits in that area to help vulnerable citizens amongst their community. And what happened here is that not only did the the, the churches uh, realize that this was coming, the city knew it was coming, too. And they they knew that the the churches opposed this water fee scheme that they were trying to put into place. And so they went to a town several hours away in Austin. So Magnolia is over closer to Houston. And Austin is the, the capital of Texas, where they have a lot of administrative proceedings there. They tried to validate this bond rate, this uh, this water rate, before it went into actual effect and before anybody really knew what had hit them. The churches only found out about this several months later after they sued the city of Magnolia, and the city of Magnolia tried to hold them in contempt for violating the, the injunctions that they already received way away over there in, in, in Austin. But look, there was no question that the Magnolia city leaders knew that these churches wanted to challenge this water scheme. The churches attended multiple public hearings. They sent letters. They saw a legislative fix, even. They even provided notice that they were going to sue, which is required under the Texas Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And still, the city leaders denied these churches even a fair opportunity to challenge the water free scheme by moving the case to court several hours away. Look, if they're going to, to take away or to impose this water fee scheme, they've at least got to provide due process to these churches before, water, before raising these water fees. Now, my understanding is these fees are higher than have been applied to any other business or residents, that these are more exorbitant than you've seen applied elsewhere. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think in one case, one of the churches has a 178% increase to their water bill because of this. The churches have had to make really tough decisions about what ministries they are and are not going to operate because of these water bills. These are Baptist churches, and they use water, you know. Uh, and this is a, a thing that's going to really impair their ministries here. And, and before they, they take that away and force these churches into that decision, due process, which is a, a constitutional demand, meaning that if something that's a right of yours is going to be taken away by the government, you've got to at least give them, the, the state has got to at least give them an opportunity to challenge that taking, right? It, it, at least basic fairness demands that and prevents Magnolia from excluding churches from that process because they know they're going to try to prevent it. That level of... Uh, you know, backroom dealing is just unacceptable, especially when it concerns religious liberty. Yeah. Now, my understanding is Magnolia is one of a growing number of localities that have enacted these discriminatory fees against churches and other nonprofits. 
because the government uh, views them as um, need as having to pay their fair share in quotes, whatever uh, that means more specifically. Um, what's the what's the remedy? What can be done since Magnolia sort of went out of its way to make sure that the churches would not have an opportunity to weigh in on this and to challenge it? Well, thankfully, we were able to intervene in that case in Austin. And the court there, and I think rather humbly by that judge, recognized, hey, he didn't know that the city of Magnolia had had hidden this from the churches. They posted notice about it, according to the statute, in the newspaper. Well, I mean, you know, that little tiny advertisement in the back section of the printed newspaper that nobody gets, mm-hmm. was, I guess, noticed, you know, whatever. And the court said, look, you guys knew, city, you guys knew that these churches had an objection. And if it wasn't clear to you after you filed this action, the city sent or the churches sent you a notice that's required under the, the Texas Religious Freedom Restoration Act that they're going to sue you. And that keeps us from actually proceeding with that lawsuit for 60 days. It's a, it's a requirement. And so if you didn't know before, you certainly knew then. And the court said, look, you should have given them an opportunity, uh, special notice. You had to actually tell them you were trying to do this. They didn't do that. So the court has welcomed us back into that. The city has now appealed that decision to the Third, third District Court of Appeals here in Texas, the state court, appellate court. Uh, and today we have an argument about that. And, you know, I think the judges were uh, asking the right questions here. And I, I think they're very skeptical of the actions that the city of Magnolia has taken here, especially when their own city administrator basically said openly in a public meeting, yeah, these groups don't pay any taxes, so we can't get any money from them. So we're imposing this water fee scheme so that we can actually get money out, out of these churches. Hmm. Now, uh, you were before the court, the third district court of appeals in Texas, in Austin. What happens next? Well, we're going to have to wait for a little while until the, the third district decides to issue their opinion. And, and my, my, my suspicion would be that uh, regardless of how they rule, one of these sides is going to appeal to the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, and so I think we're going to have to bring, make this issue go all the way to the highest court in the state of Texas and, and find out whether whether cities are able to do one of two things. Do they have to provide actual notice to people who are, are affected, like these churches were? Or can can these cities kind of hide their dealings in courtrooms far, far away and prevent them from even interacting or uh, stating their opposition? Uh, and then I think in addition to that, we're going to learn whether or not uh, these fees in lieu of taxes, if that's a legitimate thing to be able to impose upon tax-exempt organizations like churches who do so much good for their communities, that they ought not to be punished with these exorbitant rates that these cities are trying to impose just because they're lacking in revenue. Are you optimistic that uh, at, at minimum uh, the court will require that, that municipalities inform those upon whom they want to impose a tax or um, are you hoping for an even broader decision that says you cannot uh, impose a fee in lieu of a tax on entities that are nonprofit? I take both, of course, but <laughs> I think what's the likely outcome here is that the court's going to say, look, you, you, if you knew about this group, these churches, and they oppose this, as you certainly did after having sent you a letter in, in the summertime and having gone to every city council meeting and then lobbying the legislature in Austin for a legislative fix and then sending you a letter saying that you're going to sue, you knew who these potential complainants were. You should have told them. I think that's the likely outcome here, at least initially. And all that we're asking of the courts is just give us a chance to oppose this. There's no guaranteed outcome on this. We think we've got pretty strong arguments that these water fee schemes violate. They provide a substantial burden upon the free exercise of religion in violation of Texas's RIFRA law. But we want to at least be able to make that case because the the city hid this from the courts. 
the churches didn't even have a chance to to make that claim in court. And when they tried to make their own independent claim, the city's response was to threaten them with sanctions. That's neither fair nor just. So ultimately, if the judge rules, as you've just described, is possible, it will be the courts that will determine whether or not the city can impose the taxes or will they more likely determine the the um the way that the the city informs those they're about to tax. What, what's it, it'll, it'll have to be a two step process. Uh-huh. First, we've got to figure out whether or not there's actually a due process right that's been demanded. Right. We think that there is, and I think the court is likely to agree. And then we'll have to consider the merits of the issue, whether or not the cities can actually impose these water fee schemes in lieu of of, uh, of taxation that uh, they would otherwise want to get. Now, I mentioned earlier that this uh, the city of Magnolia is one example, but there are others as well. Why is this important to the church in general, not just to the three churches that we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation? Yeah, I mean, just just think about the amount of water that your church uses and, and other utilities that your your church uses, and, and your, your your bill is already uh, tough. Uh, these are voluntary organizations, uh, charitable organizations that do a tremendous amount of good. In fact, I, I would argue, and many have, that the, the good that churches do relieves the government from a vast amount of services that they would otherwise have to provide. In fact, there are studies all over the place of the, the millions and millions of dollars that churches provide mm-hmm. to their local community by virtue of just being there. Uh, and so if if they have to then reallocate those dollars that they have to spend, you know, every time a toilet is flushed or the, the baptistry is filled or the water, the lawn is watered and, and all the things that are necessary to carrying on a church and church in a, inside of a church building, if those rates are raised exorbitantly and they got to reallocate funds there, well, there's only a certain amount of money that's going through those churches. And so ministries are going to be cut and good is going to have to stop being done. And the burden will, will weigh not necessarily upon the church alone, but upon the whole local community that's going to have to fill up and, and uh, you know fill in for the church that has yeah. has had to reallocate its fee, its funds. And again, we're talking about the churches are paying their water bills. We're talking about an additional fee that is only applied to churches and nonprofits. That's exorbitant compared to the rate of the rest of the residents in in that area. So uh, we'll certainly uh, watch and follow with interest what happens next. And I so appreciate First Liberty Institute. Uh, and your associates uh, championing these issues and keeping us informed what's going on in various places around the country. Our pleasure. I I encourage folks to learn more at firstliberty.org. I would encourage them to do the same. Hey, thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you. Uh Bye-bye. Again, uh, Jeremy Dice is Special Counsel for Litigation and Communications with First Liberty Institute on that appeal before the Texas 3rd District Court of Appeals in Austin, Texas. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Governor Kate Brown is going to hold a news conference tomorrow morning to announce new steps to slow the spread of the coronavirus here in the state of Oregon. Well, the news release that was sent out earlier today from the governor's office says that Governor Brown will address mass gatherings, social distancing, which is something that we're seeing applied in various places around the country, workplace practices and other community wide mitigation efforts. State and county health officials are going to join the governor for the news conference. That will be 11 o'clock here in the state of Oregon. It's going to be streamed on uh, many of the local news stations Uh, Again, 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. Well, the announcement comes on the same day state health officials announced four new COVID-19 cases in the state of Oregon. The new cases bring Oregon's statewide total to 19 across nine counties. 
In the state of Washington, Governor Jay Inslee announced a ban on gatherings of more than 250 people in three counties. Seattle's sports teams have either canceled home games or announced that they will be played without fans in attendance. We talked a bit more about that uh, earlier when uh, we talked about March Madness and just how different things will be without a crowd uh, during these very popular games. Now, that's that's the small part of it. The rest of it is that people aren't going to be traveling to watch these games. The local businesses are not going to enjoy the business they had anticipated, vendors and so on. So it really has a tremendous impact on the economy or has the potential to have a tremendous impact on the economy. And as I mentioned, the president is going to be addressing the country at 6 o'clock p.m. this evening to not only talk about the uh, the virus itself, but the economic impact and efforts being made in Washington, or at least attempts being made in Washington to address that aspect of this um, uh, this new virus. Um, now, uh, social distancing is something that even came up in our office uh, here earlier today. There was a conference call with uh, some of the corporate uh, owners and managers discussing what happens if we find a coronavirus case here within the radio stations. Um, what's going to be the protocol? How do we continue broadcasting? So it it, uh, it begs the question in many industries, how do you continue? And is it possible to continue under varying circumstances if the coronavirus becomes an issue in your place of business, in your place of uh, worship and so on? In fact, tomorrow we have a guest on the program who has put together a resource for churches uh, specifically addressing the coronavirus. And there's a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. You can take a look at that now. But uh, my guest will be on at, um, uh, in the second hour of tomorrow's program, and we'll talk in more detail about that. So keep that in mind. Well, with Republicans determined to block any movement on climate change in the legislature without the uh, people of the state of Oregon having the opportunity to weigh in, Governor Kate Brown has promised uh, last year has decided to end run them with a far reaching use of her executive powers to achieve the same goals on a different path. Now, the governor signed an executive order earlier this week that establishes the same aggressive greenhouse gas emission reduction goals that were contemplated under the Democrats' controversial and now failed climate change policy, Senate Bill 1530. Now, namely, the state will seek to reduce emissions 45 percent below 1990 levels by 2035 and 80 percent below 1990 levels by 2050. But the governor doesn't have the legal authority to set up the comprehensive economy-wide cap-and-trade system uh, that would have been established under that legislation. Instead, she's ordering an alphabet soup of state agencies to consider emissions reductions as a top priority in their actions and to use their regulatory tools to seek carbon reductions in specific sectors to move the state toward that goal. This executive order is extensive and thorough, taking the boldest actions available to lower greenhouse gas emissions under current state law, the governor said in a statement. As a state, we will pursue ever, uh, every option available under existing law to combat the effects of climate change and put Oregon on a path we can be proud to leave behind for our children. Well, Governor Brown said that while she still believes a carbon market would be the most effective way to reduce emissions, she does not have the executive authority to establish one. Instead, she said she was taking a sector-by-sector approach that would significantly reduce emissions while the state's economy... uh, 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 to continue to grow, allowing it to grow. I'm keeping my commitment to Oregonians, she said in a press conference. 
Well, much depends on a lengthy rulemaking process that will ensue, though the impact of the governor's actions are likely to fall short of the cap-and-trade system that was proposed under Senate Bill 1530. It's surely a letdown for the national environmental groups that backed the bill in hopes that it would uh, have a domino effect on carbon regulation in other states. However, the governor's order and the resulting rules are sure to face a legal challenge from opponents, as similar moves by Governor Jay Inslee have in Washington. Now, really at the heart of this, in addition to opposing elements of cap and trade and the impact it has on the economy and uh, Oregonians or state residents, um, as in the case of Washington, is the fact that Oregonians uh, under the uh, scheme that was attempted this and last legislative session would not have have permitted Oregonians to weigh in on uh, whether or not uh, we favored that plan. So we'll see what happens next. Well, getting to work by bike, car, or public transit is a part of our daily lives. Drive times can take up to and sometimes more than an hour just to go a few miles. What if there was another option to skirt the traffic and get to work on time? Well, Friends of Frog Ferry uh, has been working on a plan to bring a passenger-only ferry to the Willamette River. The nonprofit proposes nine stops from Vancouver, traveling uh, down the Columbia and connecting to the Willamette to Oregon City. Stops would include St. John's, Swan Island, Convention Center, Salmon Springs, OMSI, OHSU, Milwaukee, Lake Oswego, and Oregon City. We're looking at a low-profile vessel so that we can clear those bridges. It's it's estimated that the passenger count will range between 100 and 149 passengers. The founder and president of Friends of Frog Ferry said during a news conference Tuesday morning. Uh, uh, Ms. Bladholm said that the boat would be a hybrid using electric and renewable diesel. She said it would alleviate traffic congestion, taking 6,000 people off the road daily during the week. We obviously really need to work hard to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, she says. Well, the time it takes to get from Vancouver to downtown Portland would be comparable to what a typical drive would take with some traffic. She believes it would take 38 minutes to ferry passengers from Vancouver to Salmon uh, Springs, going against the current, and 30 minutes from for a return trip. St. John's and Salmon Springs would take about 16 minutes. Congestion is growing every single day. We need multiple solutions to our traffic congestion problems, and she proposes that this frog ferry might be one of them. Well, the ferry system is still in the planning stages. A case study report uh, looking at ferry service models around the world uh, was completed in the fall of last year. A demand modeling um, report looking at where commuters are coming from and going was uh, completed at the end of last year as well. Next is the operational infrastructure report. And to make that happen, the Oregon Department of Transportation has granted the nonprofit $200,000 to complete the study matching the $40,000 grant by the Portland Bureau of Transportation. This is really an important plan because it will assess the current infrastructure we have how many docks do we have? Are our docks adequate uh, for our needs? It will assess the current infrastructure. It will tell uh, tell what's needed, how much it's going to cost, and how um, how it's going to be paid for. Well, the cost of a daily ticket would run about five dollars and fifty cents, with monthly service costing about one hundred and twenty five dollars. Friends of Frog Ferry hopes to be operational by the spring of twenty twenty three. Now, it's it's hard for me to imagine how that would be feasible, but we'll see what happens. As the study continues, well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Kim Erickson. She's the author of Surviving Sorrow, A Mother's Guide to Living with Loss. The book is published by uh, um, Moody. And we're also going to talk with one of the uh, writers of the guide, the coronavirus guide for churches, 
uh, that's uh, currently available online. You can find a link to it at, on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. You can download it there, and we'll be talking about it in some detail tomorrow in the second hour of the program. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.